Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Você tem mesmo coragem? Olha só. Chique transit. Hey Jenna, it's a big week. <laughs> is it? Or at least it's 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 a big country that we're discussing this week. It is. Brazil, largest country in South America and a place that neither of us really knew a whole lot about before jumping into a whole bunch of Brazilian films. I think I've learned quite a bit since I started watching these things, but I guess we already tackled the Shaw Brothers without having a whole lot of knowledge ahead of time about Hong Kong cinema. And Poland was a little bit of a jump into the unknown, but this, for uh, one reason or another, has proven to be our toughest assignment yet. We wanted to represent all parts of the globe with our uh, Cinema 60 show, so we said, oh, we better delve into South America. And Cinema Novo is, you know, the most famous South American film movement in the 60s. I mean, it was a buzzword. A lot of people knew about it without even necessarily having seen these Cinema Novo movies, but, you know, they're discussed in all the serious film magazines. And it was just, you know, after the French New Wave and maybe the Czech New Wave. It was the biggest new wave of the 60s. So I figured we better talk about Cinema Novo, but neither of us really knew too much about it. So uh, we dove in head first. And, and Jenna, you, uh, you, you kind of drowned a little. <laughs> Way to call me out. Um, yes, I did actually. I mean, if more than anything, as you said, more than any other thing that we've done on this show, I realized just how obnoxiously Eurocentric in American. The majority of my taste is, in a way. You know, there's a, a lot of very big asterisks to that statement, but at the same time, I mean, like, gosh, I don't know that much about Brazil, I realized. <laughs> I like, you know, besides Jobim and Joao Gilberto and Jorge Ben, uh, you know, and that's about all I've got. Who doesn't love the bossa nova? I got the bossa nova mm. stuff. I got there's a really good Brazilian restaurant on Carmine Street in Manhattan, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love the rainforest because I was a, a child that grew up during the '90s, and so that was a big deal. And I love animals, but this was hard. And unlike pretty much any other of the foreign movies that we've watched, this was way more specific to Brazil. <laughs> I mean, like, really, and, and that, I guess, was the point of Cinema Nova, right? It was to bring out the voice of Brazil in a time of Europe having all these new waves. So it was definitely interesting to dive into, but it was also a little bit tough. Like, some, some research is definitely required. Not major, but, like, Google it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Cinema Novo is very specifically a political cinema movement and that's really right what's tough about it but at the same time politics is politics you know you've got the right and the left and you've got corruption you know everybody's always complaining about the same political problems a big source of complaint in a lot of these cinema novo movies we watch was just the starvation People in the northeastern Brazil, Bahia, going through a drought and not being able to eat and uh, land reforms and, and uh, getting food to the people is sort of a huge part of at least a lot of the early movies we watched. Well, there's three movements to this, right? 
Well, yeah, I can go over that a little bit. I mean, we can do it as it happens. Right. Well, I'll I'll just go over the basics because they sort of correspond to what was happening politically in Brazil at the time. Leading up to the 60s, there was a populist movement. There was an elected president, and everybody was feeling pretty positive about this guy, Kubitschek. He was telling everybody what they wanted to hear, and there was a lot of effort to turn Brazil into a first world country. And both the right and the left could sort of see eye to eye on this guy. So when these political filmmakers started making their movies, Glauber Rocha, probably uh, most important of all of them, but there, uh, there were others. This first phase of, of Cinema Nova kind of corresponds to this all-around optimism in Brazil at the time, and these leftist filmmakers were saying, okay, we all can agree that we need to solve this country's problems. We can come together and fix things. So um, we're going to make some movies that point out uh, what the real problems in this country are, and, and you know everyone will be aware of them, and we can all get together and, and fix things. You know, these are not optimistic movies, but they were coming from a place of idealism where we'll make these movies to solve this country's problems, basically. And so that period lasted from 1960 to about 64 when there was a military coup and the president was ousted and there's a whole lot of confusion and the movies that were being made sort of became more specifically political, became more urban and talking about, um, you know, specifically about the politics in Brazil and it was less about hunger and impoverished people and more about just what the hell is going on in this country, where why are we under a military dictatorship right now? And then uh, the third phase started around 1968 when there was another a, a smaller coup inside of this this military regime and, and things just went from bad to worse. And, and a lot of these Cinema Novo directors thought, okay, we haven't really fixed anything with these movies that we're, we're making to draw people's attention to all the problems in this country. So let's try and make movies where we're still trying to make statements, but they're actually fun movies that people will want to come see because the previous Cinema Novo movies were cheaply made and not easy to watch. They're not fun movies. I mean, I, I, they have their moments, but in 1968, they started making movies in color and, you know, made comedies that people would want to come see. And finally, with the last movie that we're going to discuss, Maku Naima, Brazilians actually started coming to see these Cinema Novo movies, and uh, that was sort of the, the beginning of the end of the movement because it just became the official cinema of Brazil. So that lasted into the early 70s where they're still calling it Cinema Novo. I mean, based on the selection that you largely chose for this, I have to say it was sort of interesting to way too late come back and read about this whole movement <laughs> after I had watched all of these movies. But I had already completely noticed these three phases. But to me, the phases were empathy that then turns into political anger and like yelling at you to do something about it. And then it ends with just like, you know, what, like, fuck you in this entire country. <laughs> <laughs> like total, like, you know, just totally giving up and walking away, like all middle fingers, punk rock, like we're done. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was interesting. 
I mean, I think that all of these movies were a middle finger in a way. I mean, in you know, much the same way that the French New Wave was a middle finger to everything that came before. These were a bunch of young filmmakers who had a cause, had, you know, got together to make a difference. You know, it's a distinct movement because all of these filmmakers, like the French New Wave filmmakers, were film critics and they wrote a lot about their own work and, uh, you know, other people's movies. And there was sort of a, a dogma behind it. And Glauber Rocha was sort of the central figure of, of Cinema Novo. And we, we actually watch a couple of his movies. He, he wrote the manifesto of Cinema Novo, and it was an essay called An Aesthetic of Hunger trying to describe what these Cinema Novo movies needed to be. He wrote this essay and saying that the the hunger of the people should inform the style of these movies. And I'm just going to read a little bit of a quote from An Aesthetic of Hunger. We understand the hunger that the European and the majority of Brazilians have not understood. For the European, it is a strange tropical surrealism. For the Brazilian, it is a national shame. He does not eat, but he is ashamed to say so, and yet he does not know where this hunger comes from. We know, since we made these sad, ugly films, these screaming, desperate films where reason does not always prevail, that this hunger will not be cured by moderate governmental reforms, and that the cloak of technicolor cannot hide, but only aggravates its tumors. Therefore, only a culture of hunger weakening its own structures can surpass itself qualitatively. The most noble cultural manifestation of hunger is violence. So you're saying this episode is a laugh riot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Roche's films have some of the more entertaining moments. He's, he's, he has a touch of surrealism to his movies that, that make them pretty entertaining, I think. Well, the first movie we watched was pretty funny, and it was definitely the outlier of all the films that you chose here. The Given Word from 1962 by Anselmo Durate. No one would ever consider this a Cinema Novo movie. This was this is sort of the most beloved Brazilian movie of the 60s. Uh, and it's made in a fairly straightforward, I wouldn't say Hollywood style, but it's definitely like, a, you know, mainstream. You, you compared it to an Italian film, and it does have kind of a well-produced... It's very neorealist. European feel to it. And it's based on a famous play. And uh, it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes uh, in 1962, I mean, the plot, it's its fairly simple. It's basically this Catholic farce <laughs> about a man named Zay who carries a cross for several miles to the, the steps of a church. Him and his wife arrive at something like three in the morning and his shoulders completely raw and they've been walking and walking and walking for days, it seems like at least. And he basically made a promise to this folk god, Inasa, whom he equates in his head with saint barbara for having healed his beloved donkey (laughs) (laughs) and all of this comes out when he's trying to convince this priest to let him into the church to leave this cross because this is the promise that he made and the priest is of course completely aghast because not only did zay make the promise to the wrong religion but he flat out imitated the plight of christ over a sick donkey 
Which this the story about the sick donkey, by the way, like it, it, you think first that it's a friend and then you think maybe it's something else and you realize suddenly it's a donkey and it ends up being this thing where the donkey gets wounded and he has to stick cow shit in the donkey's wound. It's not a beautiful story. And so the priest says, this is completely blasphemous. You are not allowed into this church. But Zay won't give up and his presence at this step in being rejected by the church uh, to do something that is clearly at least noble in his heart, whether or not it was religiously valid or, you know, it basically the whole town starts losing their mind and they start to back Zay, whereas the church is very staunchly dogmatic in their practices and reasoning and will not let him in. So the whole thing basically culminates to this town versus church versus folk religion versus catholicism and and then there's also like a pimp <laughs> mm-hmm. named handsome and he looks like kind of like a brazilian tony curtis i thought so too so uh <laughs> must be and zay looks like nuno manfredi to me yeah i can see that too the problem is that everyone thinks that this simpleton from rural brazil is making some kind of political statement carrying this cross 29 miles or however far it is and so they're using him for their own purposes like you know the land reform people think that he's there to sort of protest the conditions in Bahia and have more rights for farmers and and that sort of thing and the priest thinks that he's you know making some kind of religious statement and it actually it's funny how this movie deals with a lot of the issues that we will be talking about with these Cinema Novo movies but it does it in a pretty straightforward, easy-to-relate-to way. You know, religion comes into a lot of these movies and, and the sort of conflict between Catholicism and the rural witchcraft practices, the macumba, uh, that sort of thing. I think this movie makes a good introduction to Cinema Novo because it brings up a lot of the same issues that those movies do, but it does it in an easier-to-swallow, easier-to-relate-to way. You figure out what Cinema Novo is pretty quickly because of how different those movies are from this well-produced, crowd-pleasing movie. Even though it's pretty depressing, it's got a, got a bummer of an ending. Yeah, it has this very moralistic ending that wouldn't be a surprise in anything coming out of any of these other Catholic nations in Europe. Very predictable, kind of depressing ending. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I should even spoil it. It's not really that much of a spoiler. You can kind of see it coming from a mile on. But yeah, I thought what was interesting about this is that it was very sympathetic to a man that is very clearly uneducated and... It's sort of an interesting statement to me on on how easily humanity can get lost in dogma. It felt like a critique of staunch Catholic practices in a land that is very clearly mixing so many different cultures and years and years and decades of building upon folklore and other religions and just this melting pot of people. And then to come in there and be real black and white about what you can and can't do and whether like, no, I don't think your intentions are pure enough. And it's like, well, do you want anyone in the religion or not? (laughs) Because that kind of feels like in the end what it is. I mean, in part, it's a very Catholic ending, but it's also I was actually surprised at how wild this movie was to have such a moralistic ending. It's pretty brazen, quite frankly. I mean, there's prostitute cat fights. There's there's capoeira dancing, yeah. which I was excited to see in 1962. I thought that was a more recent thing, but there's there's definitely a lot of capoeira dancing in there. 
I mean, and also just the humor was really pretty wild. This was definitely good. And as you said, a lot of these themes come back. Particularly the starvation of the people in Northeast Brazil. I mean, that's the next three films that we watched. I'll deal with that very specifically. I guess we should dive right into the first of the Cinema Novos, which is Barren Lives, Vidas Secas, from 1963, directed by Nelson Pereira dos Santos. based on a very well-known Brazilian novel by Graciliano Ramos from 1938. I guess it's pretty common to read this book in school if you live in Brazil. You know, a lot of these movies that have literary origins, they're adaptations of well-known novels. This one is set during the time period that the novel was originally written. It's this poor family's life over the course of two years where they have had to leave one home and they wander across the hot, barren landscape of northeastern Brazil and find this house that they were informed, well, yeah, go to this place and you maybe will be able to get a job wrangling cattle for this landowner. And there's, a, there's an empty house there, so they go to this house. The father doesn't even necessarily know he'll have a job when he gets there, but he's hoping. And so they move into this house, and then the landowner finds them there and tries to kick them out. And the, and the, and the father says, I'm an experienced cattle wrangler, so I can, I can do that for you. So this family, this uh, man and a woman and their two young boys uh, and, the, and their dog, Bellaria, create this new life for themselves in, in this sort of um, run-down house, living hand-to-mouth. They still you know, barely have enough to eat but it's a life. And then it's fairly episodic. So there's some adventures in town where the father is forced to gamble by this soldier who then uh, proceeds to lose all his money and then blames Fabiano, the dad, and they end up getting into an argument and the soldier ends up sending him to jail overnight unjustly. And what did you think of this film? What better introduction to Cinema Novo than having a parrot get its neck broken on screen. <laughs> Which, by the way, I'm sorry it's too late now, but trigger warning, there is a lot of animal abuse in, in a lot of these movies, quite frankly. But this one, for sure, that literally the opening scene is this parrot just squawking its little head off, and then the wife just snatching it and just killing it, and then you see it, them roasting this little tiny body <laughs> on a spit. And it's like, oh my god, like... All right, I get it, I got it. And from then on, I was terrified for the dog, which well, I was right to be. <laughs> I mean, I can't speak for any of the other animals that are abused in this film, but I know that the dog was fine afterwards. All of the dog's abuse was faked for the film because the director brought the dog to Khan when it played there, just so people would know that, yeah, the dog's okay, don't worry. All of that was fake. It's fake, but it's one of those things where you're like, okay, the dog's limping in this scene. Like, what rock did they stick in his little paws? I don't know. Well, dogs you can train pretty well, so it is a little harder to tell with dogs, but I don't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie is very well done. It's very well captured. There's that sort of searing sunlight that we got from 
the warped ones, which we talked about in our first episode. Uh, a lot of just beating down. It's a black and white film, but you can just feel the heat rising from this earth of nonstop drought. Yeah, everything's overexposed to make it really feel like the sun is beating down. And, and it was sort of decided that this is what Brazil looks like. So all of the Cinema Novo movies after this one served, or at least for a while, at least in the first phase of Cinema Novo, they're all overexposed black and white movies and they all have the sun-drenched feel to them. Yeah, this is definitely not, when, when you think of Brazil, you know, you don't think of this sort of barren desert wasteland, which is what, absolutely where this movie takes place, though not terribly surprising for a movie called Barren Lives. <laughs> but there is something about this. I liked it, but I just it felt like poverty tourism to me. So Cinema Novo, from the small bit of research that I did do, did take a lot of influence from Italian and definitely from Russian filmmaking. And you can see that very clearly, not only in how these movies are shot, like angles and Eisenstein kind of close-ups on expressions throughout most of the, all of these movies, actually. But there's a propaganda-esque filmmaking to this where everyone's just so miserable. There's not a moment of happiness. There's not like a... There's like... And the only moment of joy is when they think that their misery is now done. And that, of course, lasts for all of five seconds until somebody screws up. Like the wife in this movie, her biggest dream that she can possibly imagine is the idea of having a, a leather bed just having a piece of cowhide to sleep on as opposed to like the floor sex yeah and dirt, so yeah. <laughs> you know and of course the second that they save up enough money for that her husband gambles it all away in about five seconds <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i just don't like spending two hours watching propaganda like that like i get it it is important to tell the stories of this type of people but i look at a movie say like pathra panchali which i think better paints a portrait of characters who are shaped by circumstance whereas to me barren lives felt just like circumstance without characters i never felt like i understood who these people were outside of being just like miserable wretches who to be fair are not bad people there's never a moment where you feel like they deserve it they, they are definitely unfairly in these circumstances and very clearly working within a system that will never let them out of those circumstances so that i'm very sympathetic and empathetic towards but if the only thing that the characters are is like woman wants a bed and man has a desire for work and that's all there is the dog has more personality at that point which I think is part of it, too. Like I think all of these were very purposeful choices. I don't think that this was a failure of, of any filmmaking whatsoever. It's a well-done film, but... <sighs> See, I, I mean, you bring up Pater Panchali, and that you're sort of luxuriating in the beauty of poverty in that movie. I mean, I, I love it. I think that this is a much more honest portrayal. And, you know, if you want to compare this to The Grapes of Wrath, which is, is sort of set during the same period, and, I, you know, the novels that they're based on were, were written around the same time and have a similar amount of respect. And Grapes of Wrath is all about the nobility of the impoverished, you know, these poor people who can't find work or, or food. And they're so... Tom Jode is so literate. He's talking way above his social status in that movie. Like, everything is so well thought out for him, whereas these people are, are very simple and clearly haven't been able to have any kind of education. And it just... I've actually seen this movie a couple of times, so maybe it was 
little easier for me to get into their characters and their personalities. I will say that I, and this isn't going to win me any fans, but I hate Steinbeck, so that might be part of it. But this is not Steinbeck. I, I think if you go in expecting the Grapes of Wrath, you'll get something very different. There's a scene where the father disappears, right? Because he got gets wrongly arrested by this very corrupt cop while the family is at church. And the family comes out of church and they don't see the father and they just sort of stand there. It's sad and you know that it's probably scary for this family who rarely leaves the house to even to, even to go to town to go to church. And they're all dressed up. It's like their one moment in the sun. And not in the positive sun, not the evil morass sun that happens throughout the rest of this movie. And they just sort of sit there and there was just something about them. Like, they're not upset. They seem like they're unsure of how to proceed. And it felt very cold. This whole movie is very cold. They were more upset about the dog being missing than uh, the father being missing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But it felt more like this was a family of migratory birds than it was humans. Like, I didn't feel any emotional connection whatsoever. That was a visual metaphor in there, the the migratory birds. (laughs) But (laughs) granted, I, I think that there is something to be said that this was not a marriage of love. You know, I think that there is also, and there's also these expectations of what a family is meant to look like. That, of course, me as an American is is not going to really agree with whether or not it was the case. So, I mean, like, I get it. They don't have to be like a loving Tom Joad family. But it's, it's hard for me to not just feel like I'm being spoon-fed propaganda when I watch stuff like that. Like, which even if I'm sympathetic to it, I kind of resent. There's no way that they can get out of this situation. And I feel for them. And that's, again, a a plight that very rightfully should be brought to people's attention, especially all the middle class people watching this film. But, eh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there were a couple of surreal moments in there. Didn't you like when the little boy is stroking the dog and chanting about living in hell? Oh, yeah. The thing about hell was interesting. What I like about this movie is it keeps giving you hints of how things could be even worse for this family than they are. Right. There's this tension that's like, yes, things aren't going great for them, but it could be a lot worse. And thankfully, we don't have to, well, until the very end, we don't have to watch anything truly horrific happen to them. And I I like that about the movie. I mean, I'll I'll admit, these movies do have a little bit of a soporific effect. (laughs) They're not story heavy. There's not a whole lot propelling you forward with any of these after the given word you have to have gotten a lot of sleep and be prepared to work a little bit with these films but i think they're worth it so we followed up barren lives with black god white devil Glaber Rocha, and this is one of the most important films of the Cinemanova movement. 1964. This movie actually starts out a lot like Barren Lives. This husband and wife living in northeast Brazil, very hand-to-mouth existence, working so hard just to you know, put a little bit of food on the table. And I was sure when Jenna started this movie, she was saying, oh my God, another movie like Barren Lives. But, uh, <laughs> but it quickly turns into something very different. 
Fabiano uh, in Barren Lives is willing to take his blows and doesn't put up much of a fight when he's treated unfairly. But our hero in this film, Manuel, when the landowner that he's working for tries to screw him over and not pay him for his cattle, he actually ends up getting in a fight with the landowner and killing him. He straight up machetes him to death. You can't sleep yeah. on that. That's a wild scene. <laughs> but then the, uh, the, the boss's men take revenge by shooting Manuel's mother. And so Manuel and Rosa take off. They're on the run. You know, the first thing you see in this movie is Manuel on a horse witnessing the Saint Sebastian who's leading a bunch of followers and, and preaching to them. He's in priest robes, but there's something a little mystical about his preachings. And he's definitely got a connection to that witchcraft, the Macumba folk religion of, of Brazil. So it's like the given word, we've sort of got this contrast between Catholicism and the local customs. So Manuel says, oh, I want to meet up with St. Sebastian and follow him because he seems to have all the answers. So Rosa kind of grudgingly follows him, you know, much like the wife in The Given Word, just sort of has nothing else to do but follow her husband on, on this religious quest. And so the first part of the movie is Manuel following the black god of the title, this Sebastian. And he does all sorts of grueling tasks for Sebastian to prove his devotion to him, like carrying this extremely heavy rock up a mountain, which must be a reference to the given word. I mean, I'm sure people watching this movie would have made the connection at the time. And Rosa is not very interested in Sebastian at all, thinks he's a fraud. And uh, so the first half that follows the, the black god ends in a great deal of violence. So Manuel and Rosa have to move on to something else. They um, run into the bandit Carisco. Manuel decides, well, let's join forces with this guy, the, uh, the white devil of the title, because he seems to have as much you know, magnetism as Sebastian. So the second half of this movie is a lot of banditry and murder and rape, with Manuel participating in a lot of the mayhem, and uh, a bandit killer named Antonio das Mortes has been tasked with disposing of Carisco. So the second half also ends in a great deal of violence. This movie is kind of surreal and it, it's not realistic in a lot of ways. It, it deals with poverty and you know religious conflicts and the sort of banded folk heroes that, that were... Um, the Congaceros. That there were a lot of apparently in Brazil. And up to the 30s, Lampau was sort of the big bandit hero. And Carisco is all upset because they've just murdered Lampau, the bandit folk hero. And he doesn't have very many followers anymore because banditry is dying out. And that's part of why Manuel wants to join up with his crew. What did you think of it? This was weird. <laughs> <laughs> Which I liked. It dabbled more in magical realism. And everything in this movie felt just heavily symbolic from being spiritually symbolic to being symbolic of corruption. It was dealing with a lot more issues than the first two movies, which were a lot more black and white in a lot of ways. But this was so strange. It's like if you force Sergio Leone and Antonioni to like co-direct the humorless, straightforward El Topo. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's, it's not humorless. <laughs> I mean, it's just very serious. I like this movie overall. I thought this was actually really, of what we watched, was one of the more outstanding films. And I, and I would actually love to rewatch it. The pacing is very strange. And I think that now that I have a grip, <laughs> now that I've seen it and I know what to expect, I think I would enjoy it much more the next time around. And in part because there's a lot of static shots of people thinking. And you don't hear what they're thinking. 
they're just sort of looking around and they're not really even emoting so much as they feel more like they're in a sort of tableau that must mean something to somebody. <laughs> oh, but they're beautifully shot tableaus. They are beautiful. It looks great, but it was rough because there's just times where you really want some insight. You want to know more about what Manuel's thinking and you want to know about Rosa. And when they finally act, it's so powerful and intriguing. So it makes up for those slow moments of nothingness but it's just you have to also prepare for the slow <laughs> moments of nothingness. <laughs> a lot of this actually this felt more like Japanese to me in a way. It almost felt like sort of kabuki-esque in just the movements, like in that slow, thoughtful, symbolic movement. And also I think hmm. Manuel kind of looked like Tashira Mifune. <laughs> <laughs> well. Everyone in all these movies looks like someone else to me. To me, this is a movie... It's like Barren Lives, but it went further in that I think, you know, this is a movie about a couple that is backed into a corner by a corrupt system and they have no other options, or at least they feel they have no other options after Manuel kills his boss. To him, he's basically, now I'm dead to society, so I'm just going to go live on the fringes of it. So then it just, everything goes buck wild. It's like, it's <laughs> literally the, the Wild West over there. And the whole Kangasero like look and vibe, it's very pirate. Yeah. You know, it was one of those things where I didn't realize that I knew exactly what this was until I saw it in this movie. And I was like, oh, that's where that comes from. But these sort of like hanging little metal bits and beards and these big sort of piratey hats and just complete viciousness, mm -hmm. a lot of murder in this. I mean, the, and the first cult leader kills a baby, so... <laughs> And that's intense, too. I mean, they clearly did not obviously kill a baby, but there's like this massive 12-inch blade that they just drive right through the body of an infant. So it, this is that kind of movie. It was definitely wild. And there's commentary on these sort of cult religions, and there's commentary on this concept of violence and how essentially when you're uneducated and just fighting to survive that this is kind of what you have like when Carisco talks about why he is how he is which is essentially just like a violent evil person he says well one guy beat me up once so I'm just living forever with my rage and you're like yeah I guess that's how it happens right there is a, quite a bit of charisma to Carisco in a way that you never feel that Sebastian has I sort of understand why Manuel would be drawn to this bandit, but Sebastian is, he was almost uh, in the hypnotic state during all his sermons. Well, Sebastian preaches that through violence, you'll find God. And so I think that Manuel feels that this is his only option. He says, you cleanse your souls with the blood of innocence. So his whole thing, besides being a creepy cult leader... <laughs> is that they go to town and they just kill everybody. And through these acts, you are freeing people and freeing yourself. And that's why Rosa's pissed <laughs> about being dragged into this is that Manuel feels like, well, I already killed somebody. So however, could I have redemption? And here's somebody offering him redemption through further killing. Whereas Rosa up until then had not killed anybody. And then finally, in the end, she ends up redeeming both her husband and herself and reclaiming their lives by then killing Sebastian herself. 
Yeah, and when they hook up with Carisco, she's a lot more willing because Carisco's girlfriend there, Dada, or just a woman who's part of the crew, is uh, Rosa becomes smitten with her. There's a lot of longing looks between Rosa and Dada, and it's you know it's all just suggested, but it seems like this undertone of love for another woman is sort of what keeps her with this bandit crew, where she had nothing when she was being forced to follow Sebastian with her husband. And Corsica's whole thing is that he says he kills people because I, I don't want the poor to starve to death. You know, all of these guys justify their violence in one way or another. And the thing that was interesting about this movie to me is that Roca was clearly enjoying this Congacho world, I think more than even the movie lets on. Because the movie seems to be roughly just about one man fighting back against a corrupt system and then being forever on the run. And certainly after watching this, you do not want to go out into the backwoods of Brazil and join a cult or, you know, join up with a bandit. There is nothing positive about anything that happens in this film whatsoever. But I think Rocco is having way too much fun with it because it's an exciting movie. There's all this violence and then it's also beautifully shot. In a way that this ending where they're just sort of continually running off into the sunset feels very freeing, even though it seems like they're just going to run to the next violent thing to the next violent thing until they get shot in a shootout, you know, probably in the desert somewhere. But Well, there is something blessed about them. They do manage to survive when no one else does. They will abide just like the family in barren lives. They'll just move on. They'll keep moving and keep surviving even though their lives are hell. So uh, definitely in the same vein was the next movie we watched, Roy Guerra's The Guns from 1964. You had a fairly positive experience with this one, I think. (laughs) Compared to the others, maybe? This is where it got hard, quite frankly. I enjoyed this movie, but this one is very, very clearly political. And there's a lot of details that I had to look up because I just didn't really understand. This movie is about a starving town dying of famine. And a half dozen soldiers get sent to town to keep the peace but all they're doing is protecting the storehouse that is full of food for what seems like a business owner and making sure that all of these dying people don't step out of line and try and actually take the food it's actually a fairly uncomplicated story (laughs) you rub it in (laughs) well I mean I think that's also what makes it a good movie for a little bit of sleepy time this was not one of my favorites, although I definitely respected a lot of what it was doing. And it had some really memorable scenes, like the scene where the one soldier is sort of showing off his rifle to all the starving townspeople, just flexing his muscles a bit, basically saying, uh, don't mess with us, we've got the guns. And then he starts to take apart his gun and talk about what all the pieces are called. And he's saying, who can name this piece that I'm holding up right here? If you, if you can, you get a drink. And Whoever gets drunk first, you you, you can become a soldier. (laughs) Which I think is how they still recruit for the army. (laughs) 
And of course, this truck driver shows up and is able to assemble the rifle blindfolded in a contest with this one jerky soldier. I, I don't remember the character's name, but he definitely looks like Army Hammer and was immediately <laughs> unlikable to me for that reason. Really? I, I don't remember <laughs> Army Hammer in this, but... Yeah, he was that guy. And yeah, so he embarrasses this cocky soldier by assembling the rifle blindfolded before he can. And it turns out that he's this heroic soldier who's turned his back on the soldier life. So he's got more of a connection to the people than these other soldiers do. And he sees the plight of the people and sort of caught between these soldiers, which is what his background is, and being of the people and these starving people who just need somebody to help them out. And they're not willing to help themselves. They're not willing to rise up and try and feed themselves. And, you know, eventually this uh, gaucho, this truck driver, when this one peasant brings his dead little girl into the bar looking for a a small coffin for her and just is so impassive just sort of accepts this as his lot in life gaucho you know finally rises up in arms as, as the trucks are starting to leave town with all the food so that these starving peasants can't eat it and he starts firing at the trucks to try and stop them and 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 get the food to the people and the soldiers of course have to defend the trucks from gaucho and that's where you get some violence in action by the very end of this movie. But uh, there's also a love story in there. Mario is sort of the one nice soldier, the one soldier you kind of like a little bit. And he has an, an affair with this one... Uh, 14-year-old girl. Yeah, this one girl in, in town. And the, the seduction scene there in the alleyway is endless. <laughs> what I liked about this is it reminded me of the first half of Full Metal Jacket and that it felt like the study in machismo and authority and basically how once that illusion of control is burst there's only a handful of soldiers in this town whereas you see hundreds and hundreds of people literally standing around just just waiting to die essentially and Mm -hmm. they're praying to the sacred ox to put an end to this drought and these soldiers are such bastards they wander in here pushing people around there's one scene where they're showing off and they kill a man by mistake, even though they're trying to shoot his goat, which is just as bad. I mean, obviously, it's it's worse to kill a person, but it's pretty bad to just randomly kill someone's animal anyhow. But What was that same jerk off? Army Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, then the second that this whole thing crumbles, which is then burst by Gaucho, who is this very manly man, but he also is smart enough to know to not passively go with anybody. It's only when he sort of has that experience of, of the that child being brought in and, and he yells at this poor guy, your child died of starvation and you did nothing and, and then like grabs a gun and shoots everyone and, and has the, the most manly. I mean, he gets shot about 20,000 times until finally he dies, uh, though it's all in the back. So, you know, it's pretty cold blooded. And the second that that happens, all these soldiers start crying because they, they can't handle it. It's that sort of, you know, it's easy to starve a million. It's hard to kill one kind of concept. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. And, and it took it out of the context, which was 1964 Brazil, which is when they were having their military coup. And I think this tied into this larger fear and worries that were already happening within the country. But this film, it has a lot of close focus on faces. There's a lot of 
conversation of people sort of kicking around and not really doing anything but sort of establishing just who these guys are and so that later when it breaks down it just becomes very clear what the facade was that to me was interesting because that felt more universal than just this idea of military coup starving people brazil the way that a lot of these other movies did. Yeah. But it's not perfect. It's sort of interesting in that you're with these soldiers. Like, the soldiers are played by trained actors, and these are the guys that you're being asked to identify with, and they're the people you don't want to identify with. You want to care about these starving peasants, and you want to see a story of them rising up, but you don't. You just see these soldiers sitting around doing nothing, killing time, and you know, not really having anything to do except show off their expertise with their guns. And uh, I thought it was an interesting approach in that respect. And that all the non-actors who are the townspeople are all, it's all done very documentary style and you never really get into any of their heads at all. There's a real us and them dichotomy that's, I think, pretty effective. I think when Gaucho is in the middle and is the one to finally rise up, it's a really convincing call to arms. You get the political message really clearly at that point. And violence is right there in Glauber Rocha's manifesto. You know, he says that violence is the proper response to starvation. So there's definitely a political theme running through all of these first phase Cinema Novo movies. That's pretty unmistakable. But yes, yeah, so the coup happened in Brazil and we enter a new phase of Cinema Novo. And right at the center of that second phase is another Glauber Rocha film, Entranced Earth, Terra M. Trance. This one is very political. And for me, it was the hardest to relate to of any of these movies because it gets very specific about the politics in Brazil. Even though it takes place in a made-up country, it's called El Dorado, but it's very clearly based on everything that's going on politically in Brazil. The filmmaking in this is really impressive and it feels like a real step up just in directorial panache from Rocha's previous film. I'm not sure I like it more than Black God, White Devil, but you can see that you're dealing with a world-class filmmaker here. It's just a lot of really show-offy scenes in it. And this is really where the hysteria of everybody wake up, we need to do something right now peaks. <laughs> this is the most finger-in-your-face accusatory, like, wake-up-or-die kind of film politically. yeah. Unfortunately, the central figure in this, uh, Paolo, is really poorly cast. Like, he's just this big, manly hunk of meat who looks the least like a poet that you could possibly imagine. Has the hairiest chest I've ever seen on film. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if I can do justice to the plot of this movie because it's pretty convoluted and it deals with this right-wing, very conservative politician and contrasting him with this populist leftist leader who's really not too different except he's 
more of a schlub than this other wealthy guy. And Paolo, our poet, is sort of caught between the two. He starts out as the right-wing politician's house poet, but at some point along the way, Paolo develops a conscience and realizes that he doesn't stand for any of this garbage that this guy is for. He's just so elitist and doesn't care about the people at all, and he, so he decides to follow this populist who is a schmuck in a different way, but at least he does seem to actually care about the people to a certain degree. It's definitely trying to demonstrate how, when it comes to politics, it's all about supporting the lesser of two evils, but other than being impressed by individual scenes, in this movie, particularly the discotheque orgy scene that felt like a Brazilian La Dolce Vita or something, and I don't know, just a lot of wow moments here, but I really just need to see it again. I had some trouble getting much out of this movie, as impressed as I was by it. So you warned me before I watched this one. You <laughs> sent me literature, <laughs> even... And I read that and I watched this and I had the same exact problem that you did. This felt very, very specifically political and that all of these characters are very clearly not only like specific leaders, maybe I'm wrong. That's the other thing. I just don't even know because I don't know enough about Brazilian 1960s politics, which is my failing, like 100%. Like I I screwed up. Like... I should have read like an entire book before I watched this film. And and I very well might because quite frankly, as you said, this is such a great looking film and it has so many really interesting moments to it. It has good lines. It has like the whole political context is really interesting to me, but I just can't grasp onto anything. Like I couldn't even tell having watched the film. I couldn't tell you who was right wing to left wing. They, I mean, and which I think was the point of the movie for sure. I think, again, this was all clearly on purpose. But these politicians are just, there is no lesser of two evils. I couldn't identify who was the lesser of two evils. They felt like the same guy. Just one was a little fancier looking. One was a little schlubbier. Which, again, might have been the point of the film. <laughs> which I think, from, from the little that I do know about Brazilian politics, seems to check out in the sense that you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, that people are getting into politics for the wrong reasons, and then when they have power, they just immediately want to profit, and it's just corruption. I didn't buy him as a poet. I mean, I think every character in this movie feels symbolic and none of them feel like actual human beings, which was a problem for me. Not knowing the context well enough to really pick up on the subtleties, which I'm sure are great. I really, I wanted to like this. There's just so much that is just so vague, which I do think is a problem. I think that the biggest problem is that you get more dialogue from the politicians than you do from our main character who just feels like, the fact that it's established he's a poet and that's all you're meant to know, you're meant to just immediately feel like, great, love it, poetry. <laughs> and I just didn't. I didn't. And then there's this woman that he's in love with, Sarah, who doesn't have any lines for the first half of the movie and then suddenly has this really intense monologue about how she was tortured and raped and how politics is everything to her. And she becomes really interesting after that, but they kind of drop the ball on her too everything is so airy in this movie including how it's shot it this camera sort of weaves in and out of people on the street or, or out of these strange buildings and whether or not they used a fisheye lens it felt like a fisheye lens effect and how they sort of press into somebody's expression and then 
pull back or have people walking towards them in, in corridors. It looked great. <laughs> and there were some incredible crowd scenes, like when the left-wing politician is out campaigning in, in the streets and there's music and dancing and you've got the little priest who does a dance. I've never seen crowd scenes captured like that. And I guess Roche's next movie after this, Antonia Das Mort, the sequel to Black God, White Devil, which we didn't watch for this episode, is even more about these like incredible crowd scenes and just watching people move in and out of frame and, and what, you know, just the motion of hundreds and hundreds of people on screen. Out of context, it's just beautiful to look at, but I did need more context. And then... The end of the movie is first, so it's kind of out of chronological order and some important things. A lot of Paolo's past is just discussed and we don't see it happening, so it's hard to connect there. So it all seems like, you know, everything's happening in the wrong order. And and then it will cut to these films, these political exposés that Paolo has made where he exposes Porfirio Diaz, the right-wing politician, for the fraud that he is and that he's essentially a mass murderer and won't do anything to help the poor people of Brazil and it, the movie will cut to that propagandistic film that Paolo has made and you know we'll see that and then he makes another one that's actually this big crowd scene that I was talking about with the populist leader is another one of Paolo's films and this is supposed to be a more positive portrayal of Vieira the populist leader and so it's just a whole melange of styles and it's put together in a fascinating way. I'll bet if you're a fan of political films, you may be able to go into this without knowing the specifics of Brazilian politics and get something out of it, just because it does seem to be the case that politicians are the same the world over, that they're all just self-serving jerks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, for sure, the most interesting part of this movie is seeing the two politicians who are clearly coming from very different places and starting off with these very different speeches but by the end of the film they're both essentially just saying the same things and then you have this poet in the middle who betrays one for the other but in the end he gets shot <laughs> it's not a spoiler it happens in the first five minutes so the populist leader has won as governor and the conservative is planning a, a military coup to take over the government from this guy. And Paolo is trying to convince Vera to take up arms and fight back against Diaz and, and don't let this military coup happen. And Vera isn't interested for his own safety and just because he doesn't quite, you know, he doesn't have the kind of conviction that he should have to be in the position that he's in. If they cut out the love story and they cut out honestly the main character <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is the real problem for me is that although i thought it was kind of interesting how they contrasted sarah with sylvia sarah's like the radical who uh, sort of inspires paolo to take up arms and and sylvia is like the high class luxury girl that he's also having a flirtation with and goes back and forth between these two worlds throughout the film and these two women sort of represent that and it's they were a way into the movie for me anyway i sort of knew what world i was in based on who Paolo was with at any given time. I did like that there there is a dip in the middle as Paolo resigns from the first leader to then saying basically like screw it and living that La Dolce Vita lifestyle in the city that amounts to just him banging whoever. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, like that's a theme that comes up, especially now that we're getting into the late 60s here. That seems to be the theme of these other Cinema Nova movies. Well, we tried one way, we tried the other way, so let's uh, forget it. 
<laughs> let's just have a party because it doesn't matter either way. And the second that he gets involved with the populist leader thinking that, well, maybe this will be a better time, of course he gets inevitably let down. So he might have been better, at least emotionally. And I guess he wouldn't have been shot if he had just <laughs> stuck with partying. Which leads us to The Red Light Bandit, your favorite movie that we watched. Yeah, right. 1968. Rogerio Scanzerla. This movie, I don't even know how to summarize it. It it sort of starts out. Well, it's based on a true story. It is. I this movie was. I didn't yeah. like this movie. I thought this movie was pretty bogus. It basically it starts out as a sort of bombastic, violent satire. I really don't remember what how I have to like Google this movie. I don't even like I, I immediately shut this one out of my brain after I saw it. Well, okay, so there's this red light bandit who's terrorizing Sao Paulo. So he's breaking into rich people's houses and murdering them for no particular reason, stealing things sometimes, raping the women. And there's a constant narration. There's a male and female like newscaster going back and forth about what's happening. And a lot of it has to do with this red light bandit. And it's all very exaggerated. And they get very excited about his crime. And clearly, Sao Paulo is both terrified and in love with this red light bandit who... Um, for some, he's kind of a Robin Hood figure because he targets all these haves. And he's a hero to the have-nots because he's given it to the rich people. And in that way, we sort of see this connection to the bandit heroes that we're talking about with Black God, White Devil, and Lam Pao and that crew in the early 20th century. These were the Billy the Kids of Brazil who were folk heroes, even though they were rapists and murderers. They're still beloved by the Brazilian populace. Problem is, all of that's much more interesting when it's not just straight up city murder. City murder is not nearly as interesting when it's just some jerk. The director was 21 when he made this film, and I think that's really overt. Now, apparently this is beloved, though, you said. Yeah, it is. And I think speaking Portuguese and maybe being Brazilian is pretty essential to getting a lot of the humor in this movie. And you can tell by the way that the male and female narrators are going back and forth that there's a lot of punning happening that's going over our heads. But just the whole exaggerated tone of this movie, it feels very much like Godard, like Breathless Era, Godard. But it actually, I mean, I think it holds together a little better than Godard. Like, Godard will lose me when he sort of goes off in his own, like, you know, just to explore his own, you know, literary interests. I think this movie has, is a little more interested in just entertaining its audience than Godard is. For like the first third of this movie, I was blown away. I thought it was the best movie I'd ever seen. And it, it kind of gets a little exhausting after a while. It was just relentless. But it also like, it, it brings in a more interesting political aspect as it goes along. Like, the red light bandit takes up with this prostitute named Jeanette and she sort of accidentally discovers that he's the red light bandit and they you know at some point they have a little tiff and she reveals his identity to one of her clients who's this fat cat politician who's just come back from Spain to 
take over the government of Brazil. He, he sees a, an opportunity to make his mark, and he's sort of a real combination of the two politicians in, in, in Trans Earth. Sweaty populist who's not really a populist. He'll say what he thinks the people want to hear, but really he says, like, the starving people need something to chew on, we'll give them chewing gum and, you know, things like that. And he sort of hangs around with this German guy who it turns out is a Nazi war criminal. So it's, it, it, again, this movie is sort of picking up on this idea of the value of human lives and how do you compare these individual crimes of the red light bandit to you know these politicians who are starving thousands upon thousands of farmers in the northeast or these nazi war criminals who gassed people in concentration camps and murdered millions i was exhausted by the time a lot of those really interesting concepts appeared in this movie because it's just so hectic and fast-paced I don't know. I thought it was good. I'm itching to see it again. I think there's a lot in this. I really like the first half of this. I think that's part of why I ended up really disliking it in the end is that it starts off really promisingly violent and clearly satirical. Like you have, as you said, these news voices narrating what this red light bandit does. And he's just like a despicable creep. There's nothing that he does that's positive, And yet there's this media sensation over trying to understand his sort of modus operandi but there there isn't one he's just this total asshole so i enjoyed that in media trying to make sense of anarchy and it's it's very like punk rock i mean like he breaks into one house he's like give me all your money and like make me an omelet and then he like forces them to watch him as he slowly eats this omelet or um, there's like there's a joke about modern art being for degenerates and stuff like that like that that stuff was fun or you know, just even that it is very like Godard in just how it's shot and, and the narration. There's even a scene where the red light bandit says, I tried to kill myself with oil paint, but I couldn't, which to me was Pierrot food. <laughs> well, the, how he does end up killing himself is very Pierrot LeFou. Right. <laughs> I mean, but then the thing that lo- it lost me because then it, it goes from this really like punchy and like fun and punk rock beginning and it just slows down into that sort of meandering Godard nothingness where all of the women that get introduced, of course, are all introduced like naked or, or in various stages of undress. So I just don't care anymore. He's going on about like his parents. I don't care. I just didn't, you know, it didn't do anything to me. This, the prostitute he hooks up with is just there to essentially backstab him and take money from him and give it to a pimp. And then he turns around and shoots her in the stomach. I mean, like, it's just like, okay. I mean, I, it, it did win me back again in the last five seconds in which aliens then come down to Brazil. <laughs> that was great. But it, but it could have it cut out that whole middle section, make this like an hour long to 45 minute long movie of just the first half and the aliens. And you have a five star film. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I liked how it kept sort of blowing up, giving more and more of a, of a broader view as it goes along. I also should mention that this is not technically well this sort of a branching off from cinema nova in a way this is part of the cinema marginal or the garbage cinema movement uh which is you know connected to cinema nova in a lot of ways but it was also sort of responding to cinema nova and and the seriousness of those movies and it's you know very slapdash aesthetic and they're made very cheaply and just kind of thrown together and it's sort of dwelling on the ugliness of these characters and the, and the, their lives he like washes his face in a bidet <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so this is sort of a double middle finger because this is a g- giving the finger to the parent movement, the, the Cinemanovo, that you know, the, this movement probably would not have existed at all without uh, Glauber Roche and those guys making the movies they did. And, and they're still of a piece. The politics are, are coming from a similar place, but there is sort of a throw it all against the wall and see what sticks sort of aesthetic going on here, which, which I appreciated. I could watch more of these garbage cinema movies. It kind of, it reminded me of like Robert Downey Sr. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last film I liked a lot more even though I think it has the same effect at the end of the day, but it doesn't, it dresses it up as something else, which was Maku Naima. directed by Joaquim Pedro de Andrade and this one I think is also based on a beloved novel right it is uh, maybe not as well known as Barren Lives but definitely a well-known novel from much earlier I think the 20s this was also the horniest (laughs) of all the films we watched even though it's pretty much a PG-13 film I eh, a little bit are i suppose but it's very actively horny considering it's about i don't know this this one's weird i'll (laughs) i'll warn you before i get into it but it is about a man who was born fully grown in black in a village in the brazilian jungle not even a village in a hut (laughs) yeah in like one hut basically there's a couple people there but born in a hut to a mother that is miserable and expects only bad things for him. So she names him Makunaimo, which is apparently starting a name with M-A is bad luck. So he is a man, baby, for the first at least 20 minutes of this film. We sort of see him going around the jungle and doing various crying fits and stuff like that. And then eventually he sort of shapeshifts into a white guy. He finds a magic fountain and he bathes in it and it turns white. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he turns white and he says, I'm white, I'm handsome. You know, we'll put a asterisk on that and come back to it. And then he moves to the city of Sao Paulo, where him and his two brothers, one who's black and one who's white. And very old. Right. <laughs> they immediately meet this female revolutionary type who Mako Naima falls for, and they have a, a love affair. Well, he seduces her by having his brother help him rape her, you might say. The brother knocks her on the head with a brick or something, and then Maku Naima takes advantage of her when she's unconscious, and then she wakes up, and then she is instantly in love with Maku Naima. I mean, it happens. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. He is just basically like his life after that. He ends up falling in with this businessman who likes to eat people. There's a lot of mystical things. He, when he's out in the jungle, he meets some mystical creatures, too. One of them is a Kurupira, I think is how you say it. This red-haired demon with backwards feet that tricks people and eats them too. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Makunaima is starving and this ogre-like guy, who's still pretty human-looking, lets Makunaima eat a chunk of meat from his leg. And then he starts to chase Makunaima, who runs away, but the chunk of leg meat in Makunaima's stomach is telling the ogre where he is so that the ogre can follow him 
through the jungle, and uh, it's not until Mako Naima pukes up the meat, and then the the meat starts talking, that he's able to escape the ogre. It's like if Almodovar art-directed Yodowowski in the Brazilian jungle. <laughs> <laughs> to me, you know what this actually really reminded me of? One of my favorite movies, Mr. Freedom, which is a really scathing satire on America, which we will 100% talk about at some future episode of Cinema 60 here. But That's going to be a 60s pick for sure. But this is about Brazil. It's the same thing. I, I like After all of this talking about the plight of Brazilians to talking about political anxieties to then now accusing people of not caring enough to then saying, you know what, screw it. This is all anarchy anyhow. Now we're at this point where we are just so angry at our country, apparently, that we're just going to put all of its flaws on display and parade them around under the guise of patriotism. (laughs) Well, I mean, like Mr. Freedom wears the stars and stripes, you know, the red, white, and blue, and he is the embodiment of the American spirit. Mako Naima wears green and yellow, the colors of the Brazilian flag. So he's the embodiment of Brazil, but he's the absolute opposite of Mr. Freedom. He's lazy and just, you know, lets people do things for him. And he just falls into bed with various ladies and and they all seem to want him, possibly because he's white. This movie deals with race in a way that none of the others we've watched deal with in in a specific way. I, I feel like that could be a huge topic of discussion because There's definitely racism in Brazil in the 60s, but it's different than American racism. And these movies only kind of touch on it a little bit until Mako Naima that actually directly addresses it, how it's just not saying anything about a lack of equality between the races of blacks, whites, native Brazilians. But being white is the best because you get all the advantages. You can be exactly the same person and be white and all of a sudden all the women want to sleep with you and things just get handed to you. Yeah, this is definitely pretty damning of, (laughs) I mean, it's damning of everything. I mean, it's from racism, sexism, politics, folklore, violence, ignorance. Maku Naima, as the symbol, as you said, of Brazil, he's just the worst person. He's horrible besides being a big baby (laughs) he goes from being both black and white and of course when he's white he suddenly turns racist even his own brothers call him out on that he just uses people and the second that he has to do anything that's complex or important he lays it out completely he doesn't care he'd much rather go and have sex with some random woman who he doesn't treat very well anyhow it's weird though because this whole movie is like slapstick and wacky and I liked it because it was very clearly satirical, but I also feel like if I knew more about Brazil, I would have found this a bit funnier because to me, the whole thing just comes across as bitterly angry. <laughs> it's like it's laughing. It's a sort of maniacal film in that it's clearly a comedy, you know, and it's having a ball, but there's nothing funny other than laughing through bitter tears at how you tried so hard to fix everything and here you are left with nothing. <laughs> Yeah, it took me a little while to get a feel for the comedy. Like, it clicked at a certain point. Maybe uh, when Mako Naima starts chasing an imaginary guinea pig through the financial district of Sao Paulo that I started to actually laugh out loud at this thing. You know, up until that point, I was just thinking, wow, this is a strange movie. But it's great. This could become a favorite. There could be as much here for me as there is in Mr. Freedom. 
I was very impressed that they talked about the Candiru fish, which I think is the one thing everyone knows about Brazil is the myth of a, a fish that swims upstream from your pee into your urethra. <laughs> that gets a shout out in this film. <laughs> very exciting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so much to decode in this movie, but we're unfortunately underqualified. <laughs> <laughs> to do that. <laughs> I mean, I've read a lot about this movie too, and it, I could point out some books that you should read if you want to know more about this stuff. My go-to was a book called Brazilian Cinema by Randall Johnson and Robert Stamm. That explained a lot about these movies for me. There's a very nice essay on Mako Naima, and it pretty much goes through and you know explains every little thing and, and what it would mean to a Brazilian that just goes right over the head of non-Brazilians. And this was a hit in Brazil. This is the first Cinema Novo movie that was a hit at all. It even got an American release. Uh, the, the title is something ridiculous like Jungle Freaks or something. <laughs> this is, oh, <laughs> dubbed version was released in America and I bet it didn't have quite the same impact dubbed. This gave me my new favorite phrase which is God gives nuts to those with no teeth. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's some good testicular humor in this movie. Oh, yeah, someone gets like a brick to the nuts, right? <laughs> well, yeah. The, the, and Maku Naima gets tricked into trying to crack and eat his own nuts. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> With yeah, a yeah. brick. With a brick. <laughs> yeah, and Maku Naima is a real idiot. Yeah, no, he's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I can I think you know it was interesting we we began with a parrot being murdered and I think we end with a parrot in this one too but but then Gumaim yeah, is the one true. who gets murdered because he essentially he comes back after learning all these lessons going out into the wild world he comes back to his hut and nothing's left the whole place is in shambles everyone's dead anyhow and uh, but he has brought his uh, refrigerator and electric guitar and uh, you know all things <laughs> TV all things that he couldn't possibly use in the middle of the jungle and then he goes and sees this sexy lady swimming naked in the water which the narration tells us is actually an evil folkloric creature that he's like there's some hole in the back of her neck that you can't see and that's where she sucks your soul or whatever and so we just see Maku Naima just diving into the water after this lady that he wants to bone and then all there is is just like the plumes of blood coming up <laughs> <laughs> from the water. Lots and lots of blood. And then like the national anthem plays right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, his jacket floats up like the Brazilian flag, and then the, this jingoistic song plays over it about the greatness of Brazil. Yeah, it's a strange movie, and maybe a good place to start if you want to take a dive into this Cinema Novo stuff. Yeah, it, weirdly, I would say that this is probably one of the more accessible just because it's so wacky. And you will not... Uh, unless you're Brazilian, and even then, you might need some context, but like it's so wacky that even though this is clearly symbolic and, and satire, that you can enjoy it just on the merit of it being slapstick humor. <laughs> Crazy it's funny, somebody on Letterboxd, uh, Laird, I'm going to give you a shout out, because he said that he wanted uh, Jerry Lewis to remake this movie. <laughs> I don't think Jerry Lewis had the wherewithal, but this could be a Jerry Lewis movie. It's like that weird and slapsticky. I would say I like it more than most Jerry Lewis movies. But <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a lot. It's a lot more self-aware. 
Yeah, this was sort of the beginning of the end for Cinema Novo, you know, in a positive way, because Brazilians were actually starting to come and watch the movies made by this group of directors. We're in the third phase now, the, the tropical or cannibal phase where it's all, you know, a lot of exoticism and jungle mayhem and just a lot of color and excitement to get people to show up at the theater. So... The early 70s had some more, like one of the most well-known of the Cinema Novo movies is How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman, uh, 1971, by the same guy who did Vita Seca's Barren Lives, uh, Nelson Pereira Dos Santos. Have you seen that movie by chance? No, it sounds great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's it, it very clearly fits into the tropical cannibal theme there, and that's that was probably the biggest international hit of any of these Cinema Novo movies. Some of the directors whose movies we didn't get to watch this time were making movies in the 60s, but they're just you know impossible to see, like Carlos Diegas, who did Bye Bye Brazil in the late 70s. He was one of the major players in the early days of Cinema Novo, but his early films are just... You can, you can see them on YouTube without subtitles, but the subtitles are not available anywhere. And, you know, Walter Lima Jr. And, and some of these guys sort of got a little bigger in the early 70s and are connected with the Cinema Novo movement. But then it all just became Brazilian cinema, as I was saying in the introduction. Yeah, these were interesting. I definitely, now that I've watched all of them, I'm more excited to go back and rewatch them. I think that I would want to do something like read some of those books that you mentioned or at least just have a better understanding of the time and, and the context and maybe even a better understanding of Brazil. I'm sorry to the entire country of Brazil. I don't know enough about you besides the fact that I enjoy your food and liquor. You know, so it would be interesting. I and mean, again, these were all so well made. I was really impressed with the quality of these films, even if the content was, you know, mystifying enough for me that I had a hard time connecting to it. It was undeniable that these were really interesting and well-made films. So I, at bare minimum, it's at least inspired me to care more about these. And I'm excited to now start to incorporate Brazil into our roster of Cinema 60 here. I feel like as we start any country like this to sort of give this overall 101 of cinema coming out in the 1960s, now we can start to incorporate these as we come up with themes you know, if I'm thinking of, all right, I want to do a, a movies based on this and I have three in mind, now I can turn to Brazil and see. <laughs> what do you guys have? Yeah, I can say that my favorite of all of these movies that I watched, these Cinema Nova movies, was one that we hadn't even scheduled for this episode. It was called The Priest and the Girl, an earlier film by Andrade, the director of Makunaima. And it's dealing with a lot of the same issues as the rest of these movies, the poverty and the small town living and the hunger and the religious stuff. But it wasn't one of the more talked about Cinema Novo movies, so I didn't think to put it on the list. And that's one that we should get to at some point because it's fantastic. And it's an easy one to ease your way into, too. So I would say either of Andrade's 60s movies, Priest and the Girl or Mako Naima, might be good places to start with Cinema Novo. So we're telling you, you guys, now that we did this for you, we prepped you. <laughs> you guys have to go watch this because so, later on we're definitely going to be bringing this stuff up again. So deal with it yeah you won't be sorry and then i guess we have to say what every single movie ended with which is my favorite new word fim
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.